Welcome to Directly Correct, a people's podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Craig Starbuck. Like, I, I met his supervisor. I went over to have lunch with him. And he's like, come on over. Like, come meet my boss. They're all in town from out of town. Like, come meet him. And I was kind of like telling him what I did. And like the boss, like, and I kind of like struck it off. He's like, well, come talk to our team, you know, have fun. Like, talk about what you do. And like later, my friend said, like, maybe you shouldn't talk to my team because I can't do the things that you can do. So I don't want them to see what is possible. Exactly. Like, it's like a, uh, the easiest way of putting it is called like famine mentality. It's like, there's not enough to go around. I got to get mine. So, and if you're getting yours, that means I'm not getting mine. Right. But if you have like a, a mindset of like, hey, when you do well and I'm happy for you and I do well, you can be happy for me. Yeah. Like, it's a very like multiplicative type situation. Greg, what's happening? Hey guys, how are you? Craig is the male model of people analytics. He's just so <laughs> stinking attractive. It's infuriating. But yeah. Cole always gravitates towards people's looks. Ma- male yeah. looks. I-, I think it's something that up. It is. It's the, the inner, but you, you, you know. You are striking. I, I will say that. Yeah, it's very handsome. Well, you, you, guys are, you guys are too kind. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Scott was just telling me how I'm a jerk. So. <laughs> <laughs> Kind toward me, I guess. Lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've asked you, Craig. Have you have you followed the podcast at all? Like, do you know what we're I, about, or is this new? No, I have. I don't think I've listened to every episode, but I've listened to probably the majority. Yeah, you guys put on a great podcast. Thanks, thanks so much for all you do. Always you, learn something new. That, that, good or that, bad. That, that is good. Yeah. How do you two know each other? How you I'm always amazed by how Cole knows all these people across people analytics. That's a, well, actually, that's a it's, it's kind of part of that New Year's resolution I had to kind of get myself out there in the world is one of the things I wanted to do is start meeting people who I only knew on LinkedIn. Yeah. And so I think I think I reached out to you proactively, Craig. It was that I think that was it, right? I think so. Yeah, we've been connected for a long time, but only only recently did we connect live. Yeah, yeah. So and Scott, then, I don't um, know that you and I have met, so great to connect with you as well. It's great to connect with you. And it's so true that LinkedIn is like a wasteland, right? Like people like send you a friend invite and you say accept and well, never see them again. Maybe I'll see them at a conference. And <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of a wasteland. Well, like, right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can riff off this, Scott. Like what, what is the biggest value that you think like, like maybe in, in like a micro sense, like we'll just pick on LinkedIn, but in like a macro sense, let's call it networking in general. Like what's the value in people analytics of a tool like LinkedIn or networking? I mean, what do you guys get out of it? Or is it all like, you know, Microsoft who owns LinkedIn now just gets all of our data and we're the product <laughs> and, you know, we're all the lemmings who are going along with the, the you know, their master plan. Oh man, that's, that's a crazy question uh i i am not a power linkedin user by any means like i I see notifications come through and it kind of uh uh sets me off it's like ah gosh you gotta deal with this now but for 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 me i I think it's largely the uh information that people share the content that people share that's probably the best resource that i find what about you craig yeah i i would agree with that um I, i haven't been as active um probably this year as i would have liked to have been. It, it's been a been a crazy year, but yeah, I, I think it's a lot of reach outs from vendors. You know, business development oh, folks yeah. reaching out. Um, that, that definitely happens quite a bit. 
but yeah, the, um, the knowledge um, that I get from reading posts and just the diversity of perspectives, um, you know, I would miss that without LinkedIn. I'm not sure there's a, there's a commensurate replacement for that today. Well, it's so great. It's so great as a knowledge sharing platform, as you say, because like the bar to entry is so low, like you don't have to go through a review board. You can go and write yourself a LinkedIn post and uh, reach, you know, tens of thousands of people if it gets hot, et cetera. But it's a great way to get your ideas out there. I know Cole's a big author on LinkedIn. (laughs) Big being a real. Yes, he is. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel I feel like I'm among celebrities here joining this podcast, guys. Oh goodness! Ditto. My, my privilege. What yeah. uh, what what do y'all do? I mean, we're coming up on Christmas. Uh, you guys got any big plans? No, <laughs> I'll take this like no. I I'm actually moving next week. Um, so we sold our house at the height of the market last fall. Moved Good into a you. small rental. Congratulations! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been building a new home um, six days from completion. So we're moving in, moving in next week. Well, congratulations, so I, man! Yeah, that's a big yeah. deal. That's like a a life moment. We're experiencing a life moment with you, Craig. <laughs> you, you definitely are, and, and you know I, I'm pleased to report my wife and I are still married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sure building a house has its own set of challenges that you could lament about for a while. Yeah, I, I won't get on that soapbox, but I will. I, I will say this is the first and last house I will ever build. A forever home. Put it uh, that forever way. home. Yeah, I, I'm just going over Scott. Back to to your question. Like, I'm just going over Louisiana for the holidays. Are you doing anything special? No, I don't believe so. I think I uh, exhausted my uh, airline budget during Thanksgiving in the past six months or so, but. Uh, I think it'll be like a lonely Christmas here in Seattle, but that's okay. That's okay. Womp, womp. Womp. I have a, like a bowl of eggnog to myself, maybe, you know. And what, what is going to be put in that eggnog <laughs> is, the, is the real question. Uh, honestly, I hate eggnog. Where do, where do you guys stand on eggnog? Not a fan. No, not a fan. The consistency of snot. It is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe we, maybe we introduce Craig, tell, tell folks who he is. So, uh, Craig, I appreciate you sending over a little bit about yourself. Uh, so, Craig Starbuck, he's got a PhD in organizational leadership, and he's let, built and led people analytics functions at Roku, Robinhood, MasterCard, Equifax, and TD Ameritrade. And he's also co-founded a company called OrgaCutie, which we'll get into a little bit on the podcast, but Craig... Very impressive resume. I think um, <laughs> you're one of the few people who has probably built as many functions, if not more, than I have. And so <laughs> I think I, I have a, a lot to learn from you. But I don't know, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about what's going on in your current gig. Um, you know, how, how, how are things going uh, at Roku? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, they're, they're going really well. So I joined Roku uh, back in June. And Roku, um, Roku is pretty early in this journey, actually. So it is a build function. And that, that's that's what I really enjoy doing, kind of an entrepreneur at heart, perhaps. But this is the sixth people analytics function that I built. Oh, my um, God. So, so happy, <laughs> happy to, to share some, some learnings there, kind of what's worked and what hasn't, and um, some situational var- variables that very much determine the, um, the, the right strategy. What's um, worked and what hasn't, Craig? 
<laughs> well, I, I will say first and foremost, building a people analytics function is more an art than a science. I, I would love to be able to say like, do these three things in every context and it'll be like wildly successful. That's at least for me, that's not been my experience. Um, so I think first and foremost, got to lead with the business strategy. Like what is it the business is trying to accomplish and make sure that we're tethered into that strategy. Otherwise, I think the work could be perceived as too academic and less valuable for the business. And that, that's, that's really unfortunate because people analytics is about the business. And so I think number one is like understand the business. Take the time in those first 60, 90 days, meet with business stakeholders outside the HR function and learn about the business. Um, every business has different dynamics, different markets, different players, different priorities. And I think it's really important to understand those first and foremost. Otherwise, any strategy for people analytics can't possibly facilitate those business objectives. So that's the first thing I would say. And that's, that's universal across mm -hmm. any function. I would say that's the most important like P0 uh, priority. Um, but, but beyond that, it's like meeting, meeting the business where it is, right? If it's a brand new function, probably don't want to lead with like overwhelming HRBPs and others with, with data. It's like, let, let's start slow. Let's, let's crawl, walk, and then run. And, and let's, build, let's build this capability together. I'll tell you one mistake I've made. I, I've made a lot of mistakes, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just share one, uh, one that I, I hope to not repeat. Um, before I really understood the concept of MVP, minimum viable product, I, um, I had this, this not so great idea of going out with this diversity dashboard at a former employer that was uh, many, many pages, every possible dimension that you could throw on a dashboard. And the, oh, yeah. the hope was- I, yeah. I think we, we, we've all been there, like <laughs> we're trying to give them everything. Exactly. And I, I thought like, this is going to be a good thing, right? I'm, they're going to be able to ask <laughs> yep. any question under the sun, they're going to get an answer from this dashboard. It, it didn't pan out quite that way, right? It, it was overwhelming. Nobody was using it. <laughs> so we, we just scrapped it. It was over-engineered. It was breaking all the time. The data pipeline was so oh, intricate. God. Yeah. Um, just had to scrap it. And so I, I had to learn the hard way, albeit, what an MVP really is and the importance of starting small and iterating with the customer to evolve that solution. Absolutely. And like as someone that's been on the other side of dashboard creation, so you got your users and you got the people that actually create it, be nice to your software development engineers because it is a hard life because everyone has an opinion on what that dashboard should look like. And they say like, oh, like I'll just make it on paper and like, here, just go do this, Scott. And it's like, well, what you're talking about, it's probably like 12 hours of programming right there. And they don't realize it. And then they, you know, have a, like, well, we need to change the font from like 12 point to 10 point. It's like, okay, but it's not functional yet. So I, I, hear, I totally empathize. You hear that big sigh, it's like, oh yeah. okay. <laughs> It's like, oh, I think I hit a nerve. Sorry. Yeah. Well, like the, the colors needs to be green, not blue. It's like, well, the dashboard's not functional yet. Like, but sure, we can change the font color. <laughs> Whatever. Sorry to interrupt you, Craig. I, I apologize. Please, please continue with uh, the, the journey of creating people analytics functions. 
No, that, that's so important. Uh, those finer details, kind of those finishing touches, as it were, yeah, it, it's important to keep those at bay and kind of focus on kind of the core of the solution. Um, but, but yeah, like starting small is, is really important. You know, I'll tell you at, at Roku, I, I'm taking a slightly different approach than I've taken anywhere else uh, with, with that learning kind of in my back pocket and, and, and you know, trying not to repeat that mistake. Um, given that this is a, a very nascent um, journey that we're on in, in kind of leveraging data in the people space to inform, um, you know, human capital and management decisions, um, we are looking at this concept, although we're, we're calling it a, a monthly people insights report. And essentially, it's a, it's a pared down version of data points and insights, some narratives that seem to really resonate with, uh, with our stakeholders. And so you guys have probably all seen those like maturity curves, right? It, it, it's like very linear and it's very sequential, like you've got to do operational reporting before you can do dashboards, before you can do predictive modeling and prescriptive. I actually oh, yeah, Those are all baloney. They're yeah. just <laughs> I, I don't subscribe to that model. In, in fact, we're we're jumping we're jumping straight up and skipping some steps because by addressing early on hypotheses that we're being asked to test and problems we're being asked to solve, questions we're being asked to answer, we can use the feedback from those ad hoc analyses to inform what scalable solutions we build out. And so we're we're kind of we're we're kind of stop we're starting at the opposite end, and these monthly insights reports are really intended as a way of getting the people team comfortable consuming data, leveraging it in conversations with their business partners, and then from there we can start to evolve it uh, before jumping to a full fledged dashboard. Yeah, but you're you're also answering the business questions, which is what you talked about, be fundamental to the business needs, and then develop the people analytics function to answer those questions is not about following this maturity curve. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I also, I wanted to talk to you, Craig, a little bit about you kind of your, I don't know if you'd call it a side gig, but what, whatever's going on with org acuity, uh, you gave me a quick demo of the product. I thought it was amazing. And, and maybe a little bit about what it's for, who the customers are, and what it has to do with kind of your passion in the space of people analytics. Yeah, absolutely. So Org Acuity uh, was, was born out of, um, let's say, frustration with the vendor landscape. So back in, I think it was 2008, walking the halls of HR tech in Vegas, I noticed like every single HR tech vendor had AI labeled on their solution. A AI was everywhere. Yeah. And I, I won't use any names, um, you know, in this podcast, but I was in a demo with a vendor shortly thereafter, and it was a survey vendor, and they were talking through the favorability distributions, you know, percent favorable, percent neutral, percent unfavorable. And the, the salesperson leading the demo told us, we use AI to determine favorability. And I, I just couldn't believe that. Unless AI stands for aggregated insights, this is not artificial <laughs> intelligence. Th these, this, is, this is like fifth grade math. These are percentages, right? Like this, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. And I, I kind of felt like this AI snake oil that was so characteristic of many of these solutions, like they were taking advantage of who they felt were not in the know on like what is AI and what's not. So, so we're not and, even talking like a re regressions or anything like that. It's like quite literally just like top two box. 
something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, like top box scores, right? They're just descriptive metrics. And so I, I started to look at this and I was seeing this more and more as I, as I attended these demos. And I thought, you know, number one, um, this is an AI and they're charging far too much money for these solutions labeled as AI. And two, that the price is so, out, so far out of reach for smaller organizations. Um, and that's really unfortunate because smaller companies, just like larger companies, have the same needs. Like, how do we motivate our people, engage our people, retain our best people, right? That's not unique to a larger company, but these enterprise grade solutions are out of reach from a budget perspective. And so I started to think like, how could I, how could I help? How could I build something that um, is comparable to these enterprise grade solutions, but offer it at a much lower price point that's accessible? Uh, and and that's, that's really what we're about. The org acuity mission is making people analytics accessible to large, small organizations alike, uh, democratizing access to people analytics. And so I spent the better part of two years, um, every single morning, uh, starting at 5 a.m., most evenings and every single weekend, banging out code. Um, and my, my business partner came along for the ride. He's, um, he actually used to be an IO psychologist, has a graduate degree in IO psych, transitioned into data engineering and does a lot with uh, GCP, Google Cloud Platform Infrastructure. And so um, he and I co-founded the company and he built out all of the infrastructure. I did the modeling, uh, the data viz, and everything's built in GCP. And our goal was to make it as scalable and low cost as possible so that we could bring down that cost for, for companies. So, so what, what, what are you talking about here? Like, is it an aggregation of various companies that come in and bring their data? Or like, can a company upload their data and uh, develop solutions within the tool? Or is it something yeah. totally different? Yeah, so, so we, we try to make it as simple as possible because if, if you go down market to like smaller companies, like data quality is a problem for like every company, right? Like I, I've like to say like some of the larger companies I've been a part of, they've got it figured out, not so much. But like you go down market to like smaller companies, it, it's even more pervasive. And so like having IT support, to like set up APIs, assuming they even have, you know, a, a, like a, a workday or like a, you know, enterprise grade HCM, um, that's, that's really challenging. And so we, oh, yeah. we, just, we just take a, a flat file with HCM attributes, like what are those different dimensions by which they would wanna slice and dice data? And then we have a, a survey, they just specify what items they wanna measure. We have some recommendations uh, based on validated constructs. And um, yeah, it, it spins up. We have, we have that process full into end process fully automated. It spins up and the survey launches and we have a, a dashboard with real time insights. Like as people are taking the survey, um, those aggregations are happening on the fly. So managers and super users alike can see the results uh, in, in real time. That, that is super cool and super admirable as well. And like, it, it's not just basic uh, analysis either. You have like some network analysis stuff. You have some uh, NLP built in. You're going to put us all on business, Craig. <laughs> well, I, I don't One know about profit at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's really about it's really about giving back. I mean, I I certainly have had a, a wonderful time doing it. Like it's it's been great to kind of be like the the product owner and also developer simultaneously. And like we don't have any investors, so I'm not 
beholden to what they think is is the right moves and the right features. Love it, love it. Um, but but it's it's been really great. But it's really about giving back. You know, I've I've had the opportunity to work at some really great companies um, and have really great leaders. And I've also had the opportunity to work in some not so favorable environments. And I'm thankful for both because the latter has taught me that, you know, sometimes these observations in a data set that we're working with are subtle cries for help. And, and it's our duty, our responsibility as people analytics practitioners to surface those for those who can authorize action. You know, when I, when I, um, sometimes I, I like to think of myself as like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pretty cool and sophisticated in people analytics. And then somebody like Craig comes along and I'm like, ah, <laughs> I'm nothing. <laughs> and so I, I really appreciate you, Craig. And I appreciate how you're using this kind of this, this company that you're building to help give back to the people analytics community. But another way that I saw that you're, you're talking about giving back and and I don't know if this is, or yeah, I think you have announced it publicly that you're writing a book on people analytics. Can you talk a little bit about what the book is about, how it's going to help, what's the market, all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, ab absolutely. So this, um, this, this has been something I've been thinking about for a while, and it was a New Year's resolution for me. I actually started on January 1 this year. Um, and the writing's complete. It's currently with Springer, um, and the the publication date is TBD at this point, but probably another few months, if I were to guess. So um, I, I taught a graduate um, graduate level statistics in business analytics course for about four years uh, for finance students, like an MS in finance program. And in searching, I actually developed uh, the course for that and taught it. And in doing so, I could not find a textbook that covered the, the full conceptual uh, terrain that I, was, that I was hoping to cover. Everything from like, how do you plan out an analysis, like the, the project planning stage, to like research designs, methods, sampling, onto modeling, descriptive, inferential, data visualization, storytelling, like that full end-to-end -end life cycle, I couldn't find it. And so <clears throat> I was kind of piecing together different books um, ISLR, kind of the classic introduction to statistical learning and R. My, my favorite stats book, by the way, I've read that cover to cover six times and I always <laughs> learn something new. Uh, just a fantastic book. That, that was one of the textbooks for that course. Um, another Storytelling with Data by Cole uh, Naflick. Uh, great, great book on data viz. And, and I have just a number of supplemental readings on like research designs, methods, like quantitative, qualitative, mixed methods research. And it, it just, it seemed like very fragmented. And, and so I started thinking, um, could I write something that would kind of tie all this together, kind of end-to-end life cycle um, analytics? And could I do so with uh, orientation toward people analytics practitioners? How, how do you think about this in the context of people analytics specifically? Uh, because I think, you know, for people analytics, you know, measurement's a, a significant topic, right? Psychometrics. How do we ensure that instrumentation are, are both valid, reliable? Like, what does that even mean? Construct validity, why, why is that important? Um, so I wanted a chapter dedicated to that as well. But another, another gap that I identified, at least among people analytics practitioners, is, is technical skills, like scripting in R, mm -hmm. um, SQL. Like, you know, how do you extract data in, in a performance and efficient way? Well, what, what you're referring to is like, like just absolutely super helpful uh, because a lot of times you'll, you'll read in a book and they talk about things in like very 
abstract or pie in the sky sort of ways. And like what you're talking about is very close to what Cole is actually advocating for this like norm core conference where, hey, we have specific challenges and let's not only get into like what the challenge is, but how to actually tackle it in practical terms. Exactly. And Cole, I love that idea, by the way. Would love to participate if indeed that takes off. I think your your last count was just shy of 100 respondents to that survey you put out. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to be honest, Craig. I looked through the list of responses and I didn't see your name in there, man. So Well, it's because Craig's know, going to be the keynote. That, that's why. I, I, ab <laughs> I absolutely responded to that. <laughs> okay, look look good, again, good, Cole. Good. I, I promise I responded. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, on, on the book, um, that, that was really the, the goal of this. And so it, it covers all of, those, all of those areas and the applications are specific to R. Um, you know, in, yeah. in R. Oh, oh R's, sorry. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll cut this out, whatever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, you know, I was, I was going to say that like I, I was poking around last night and I, I couldn't find uh, the book online because you say it's still with the publisher. But I did find your data sets in the uh, uh, people analytics package, which is so helpful in itself. A lot of times talk, people talk about like, I want to get involved in R, but there's no real data sets around. So you got like the empty cars and uh, the iris data sets, but it doesn't really resonate the way oh, compensation data does or performance data does. This is a way to like really dip your toe in. Yeah, exactly. Just got that published on CRAN um, about a month ago, and so it'll be um, it'll be much more easily accessible for for readers just to import the data set and start working with it. Uh, but but you're right, Scott. I, I think it's really important to have relevant data in practicing these. And I, I will say the most time intensive part of the book, which I very much underestimated, was simulating data to illustrate <laughs> yes. different things. Right? Yes. It's not just like mocking up data, but it's like, how do, how do we simulate different relationships and differences between groups in a way that allows for statistical testing and illustrating these different concepts? That, that took a, a, a great deal of time. Especially, well, and I know we'll get to this later, but chat GPT may be a data simulator for you in the future. I've seen some people are creating <laughs> simulated data sets using that tool. So just a little plug there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to talk about that in a second. I mean, that, that's so exciting to hear about your book, Craig. And I really think it'll be disruptive unless, you know, chat GPT disrupts all of us beforehand. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. I, I'm really personally looking forward to it. And I'll, I'll buy it 10 times over. But I think, I think we've got some rapid fire questions for you. Do we not, Scott? Do we have some we, rapid fire questions? We, we have some rapid fire questions. And uh, I learned, Craig because you emailed us that you're a gearhead, right? You, you work on Mustangs, is that right? Yeah, I've, I've had three uh, old Mustangs and currently um, kind of passively looking for a fourth. <laughs> so we have some uh, either or questions related to uh, being a gearhead, a little okay. rancher. Okay, uh, number one, sports cars or luxury cars? Sports cars, hand down, yeah, absolutely. Uh, electric or gasoline? Gasoline. Gasoline. Is electric even viable, like, in the long term? That, that, that's probably a conversation for another day. I, I would just say as, as, as a fan of, like, older muscle cars, I, I have to go with gasoline on that one. 
Uh, okay, I think I know the answer to this one, but classic cars or modern cars? Classic particularly, cars. Particularly the body types, right? Just unreal. Yeah, classic cars. Uh, manual or automatic? For a classic car, auto, um, I, I would say manual. For a daily driver, automatic. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say I never learned how to... <laughs> Ride a uh, drive a manual car. Can you can you do a manual call? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final one. Uh, on a road trip, would you rather take a convertible or a minivan? So I do own a minivan, and you know, funny story. I I told my wife like I will never have a minivan. Uh, I'm not going to be one of those soccer dads. Uh, <laughs> like we'll we'll have an SUV. I've I've got a couple kids and. Um, you know, when we had our second, like we, we just don't have enough space with a car. And like, if, if, you know, they wanted a friend to go somewhere, or like we go into a soccer game, got all this equipment, we just need more space. And we, we started shopping around. It's like, that's the economical thing to do. I'm just going to like, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, no pride. I'm, I'm a soccer dad <laughs> getting older. And, uh, we, we broke down and bought a minivan. So I, I would have to go with a minivan on that one. I mean, I mean, sometimes you got to wear sweatpants, right? That's I mean, right. It's, just, it's all That's just right. practical. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are killing me. Got the dad bod thing going too, which is awesome. No, um, not really, actually. <laughs> but um, Craig, do you want to join us in the nerdery? Let's do it. Let's do the nerdery. So uh, the first topic is around this chat GPT. And I will be honest, those five questions related to uh either or and gearhead were all created in chat gbt last night i just plugged in either or questions uh related to automobiles and that's what it spit out i mean this it's absolutely revolutionary i i haven't met a single person that thought eh meh meh yeah i've been playing with it all week for the podcast uh scott and i were chatting we're like man just as chat GPT comes out, Google has gotten so much stupider too. It was like the worst time for Google to not be doing well. Cause like, I mean, I feel like I can't find anything in Google anymore. And then this miraculous program comes along that, you know, answers all your questions. And I understand that like, I've seen people poking around in it and maybe some of the stuff isn't great. And I've even tried to do some of my own research about like what I consider to be pretty narrow topics and chat GPT won't have an answer at all, but it's still revolutionary. And I feel like people who aren't integrating this into like their company or their platform or what they're doing today are going to be left behind. Have y'all played with it yet? Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It, it, every time, every time I try, it, it looks like um, there, there's too much traffic, too much activity and it's, it's locked down. So there's high demand for these services. It's really exploded. When I was playing with it over the weekend, it had no problems. But yeah, I'm getting the same warning messages right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I've I've asked it to, uh, I, I've input some text into it and asked it to simplify it. It does. I've asked it to make the text sound smarter. It does. Specific topics. I've seen people uh, create legal documents on it, which uh, had a lawyer threatening to sue and shut down chat GBT. Obviously, coding, that's sort of the big thing. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of societal implications for this technology. And for your for your sake, Craig, I just asked ChatGPT when the traffic will slow down on ChatGPT, and it said, "I'm sorry, I don't think I can help answer that question." <laughs> so, my apologies. 
that's awesome. I mean, like co- copywriting is dead, right? I mean, you can ask for a five paragraph essay on, I don't know, the catcher in the rye, and it it'll spit it out for you. That's why I told the marketing team at work. I said, anybody who's doing writing right now just became an editor. That like you're no longer doing writing; you're doing editing. Now, I'm still gonna write because I like it, and yeah. because it's awful and it's so bad that Chat GPT can't do as bad as I do. But uh, otherwise, uh, I don't. I don't think I'll be automated anytime soon. Well, I, I think you're right around the coding too. It's it's not totally you know a uh, one-stop shop. Like you still need some scripts around it, this sort of thing to implement it. But it gives you disclaimers in a lot of cases of how to implement it. Uh, I mean, like with that said, like, is this going to be like a calculator that like augments us or is this going to be more of like disruptive and like we're all just going to be like, remember those fat people from uh, uh, WALL-E that just kind of sit in their chairs all day <laughs> and like have nothing to do? Is this going to put a bunch of people out of business or is it going to be like an augmented tool? Probably both. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Yeah. I, the, the way I see it is what chat GBT is today is the worst it will ever be. And it's only going to get better. And so if you know that that's the case, then obviously it's going to do a lot of displacement and there's going to be some people, you know, eating chips on the couch and all that kind of stuff. But I imagine for a lot of professions, it's also going to create augmentation for how great they're going to be able to do their jobs effectively. I, I kind of see it like, uh, oh, h- how cognitive ability influences people's overall performance, where it's a, it's a multiplicative and uh, uh, compounding effect over time. Like the people that know how to use AI or ChatGPT, they're going to be light years ahead. And the people that are Luddites, what have you, well, nice knowing you. Yeah. We personally welcome our new robot overlord. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, like, how, how's it going to, like, what what would we do, like, as IOs or people analytics professionals if, like, a bunch of these jobs went away or people didn't have anything to do? Like, because, I mean, like, we derive a lot of meaning from life, uh, probably meaning from work. What do we do? I think we all become personal trainers. I think that's what it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> influencers. We're just influencers. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. They'll probably be better at being influencers too than we are, but who knows? Or or even like uh, academics, like the, the long form essay is dead, right? Like, what is schooling going to look like? And think about all those people that are in school to be copywriters right now. They're screwed. I actually did see something the other day. I don't know if this is true or not, but they showed that there's a auditing add-on to ChatGPT that can kind of like um, what was it Turnitin.com where you could see if a student actually wrote their essay or chat GPT wrote it. So I think there's already kind of countermeasures in place for academia. But in that sense, it's like, why, why wouldn't you have someone use chat GPT or something better to help augment students if that's going to be what a future job looks like? Oh, wow. That's, that's an interesting point. Just build it into the curriculum right there. I mean, there's the, the problem comes like knowledge checks, like how, how does someone prove that they know what they're talking about? But I guess to your point, like you don't necessarily need to be able to say like, I know what seven times seven is if you have a calculator. Yeah. You outsource yeah. it. I always yeah. say, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, but it all comes down to critical and analytical thinking. 
I think if you can yeah. generate ways of, of building that in school, because like seven times seven isn't critical and analytical thinking, it's just rote recall, right? And computers are always going to be better at recall mechanisms than humans. If we can focus on doing things that require those kind of tasks, I think, you know, everyone would be better off. I don't I think I cut you off there, Craig. What, what did you want to add? No, I, I completely agree uh, with, with that sentiment. <clears throat> I, I feel like with every every new wave of technology, there's there's always this fear of automation's gonna put people out of jobs. And I, I agree that it absolutely could, but the probability is probably high that it that it will in some cases. But I also think the the augmentation piece is the thing to be really excited about because technology will always evolve the way in which we work and, and kind of the, the labor market, kind of what's in demand, what do we study in an academic um, setting? And so I, I, I don't really get concerned from that perspective. I think the augmentation is, is really key. Yeah, I, I, th I think you're so right. Uh, I'll try and go on a tangent here real quick. Um, I, I used to work at uh, ProEd and the great Don Hamill, uh, test developer there. He's an old school dude. He started uh, psychometric work in like the 1940s. And he talked about like when he was starting out as just a, a young lad in his 20s, he would hand calculate correlation tables by by hand, like quite literally like, adding everything up, you know, on like an old school adding machine and like make these big ass correlation tables. And of course, you have like limited sample size, et cetera, but doing it all by hand. And once he had that done, you know, taking like a week or two, the owner of the company would be like, all right, do it again, because you might have made a mistake in there. So have to redo the entire correlation table to understand how uh, I feel like this is a software engineering developer example again. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, they didn't have TikTok or anything cool, like nothing to go host, yeah. to, I guess. But like now, now we have uh, uh, SPSS and obviously Excel and, you know, other tools that just kind of like free us up to do more interesting work than hand calculating these sort of things. So like that's the augmentation aspect of it that hopefully we can move on to more interesting things than tedious work. Because like no one really cares if you know how to uh, code a t-test in R if chat GBT can spit it out for you. Here, here. Yeah, more, yeah, more about the interpretation of that. What are yeah. the practical applications, and what does that, what does that mean in terms of what we prescribe to the business and actions? I love that, and that's exactly what Cole was talking about too. Like the value of crystallized intelligence is dropping because you can outsource all that information, but fluid intelligence that's still king. Well, Scott, you brought a point a second ago about the value of doing that. I think that actually is a good lead into our second nerdery article about you know using tools like Excel and how that might lead to mistakes <laughs> in different papers. I don't know, do you wanna bring that up? Uh, yeah, sure. I don't have it pulled up right now, but I, I got some notes here. So there's a report in 2016 that showed that uh, in biological papers that the names in genes were shown as errors and they traced it back to Excel recoding gene names into like dates and uh, numbers, because like we're all annoyed by this, right? Like, you, you like, damn it! Like, why won't it just like it knows it's a date? <laughs> like, why? Why is it gonna be like one nine seven four, etc.? So you would think that in this time that uh, these biological researchers would uh, get wise and like change their ways, but uh, uh, not so much. 
since that time, still 31% of articles in top tier journals still have these errors in all the gene names. Obviously, like researchers are misled by this information, which is obviously not good. But uh, I guess the takeaway is uh, Excel is a dangerous place, right? <laughs> yeah, it could literally like it, I, it makes me wary to get some like new gene therapy or something like that that's coming out. It's like, uh, I think they misrecoded that variable. Well, there, there's things like uh, a common gene name would be like uh, SEPT19, and it record that to September 19, and they could see these in the uh, uh, appendix documents. So people that were actually and I get it. Like the last thing you do when you write a paper is like mess with those tables and you're probably over it by that point. And maybe you're not as uh, conscientious as you would like to be at that point. Yeah. I, I The thing I think about when I think of these things is these are very human problems, right? Like these are the things that show that, you know, when science, like if science ever presents itself as like above reproach, it's like, oh, we've got all the right methods and our peer review process is, is you know, pristine. It's like, no, it's not. Look at this. You made some no. basic mistakes in Excel. Like, come on. Oh, man. I, I used to work with someone that insisted on cleaning data in Excel. And I, I would tell them, like, dude, like, if you ever make an error, we are never going to be able to trace this down. Like, we're never going to be able to recreate it. We ha would have no idea what's going on. And, like, moreover, you know, obviously they're going to come back with like a need for a different cut of the data or what have you. But I mean, like we, we also see this in uh, SPSS where the, there's an article some time ago that essentially showed that the, the default in SPSS is for Veramax rotation in EFAs. And so many papers uh, erroneously use this rotation in their EFA because they don't know better than to change the defaults from I think uh, Veramax is the orthogonal version when it should be oblique. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Go oblique every time. Oblique, <laughs> oblique, oblique. So we're not we're not immune to this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, you have anything I, to add, Craig? I, I, I do. I, I actually have very strong opinions on on Excel, and, and maybe maybe they're a, a little harsh and unfair. I don't know. I like I that's refuse to. I, I refuse to use Excel um, unless it's something like building a quick pivot get some quick metrics because it's like do yesterday if it's a, a true analysis it needs to be repeatable and reproducible and excel hand, cannot right? do that but by <laughs> hand, of course Cole. yeah i you know I, I fax it into you know my colleague and they, yeah um but but no i think that's exactly why scripting tools like r and python have taken off because i can give a markdown like a jupyter notebook an r markdown file or a script to somebody else, and they can see step by step how did I clean the data, what assumptions were made, yeah. and and it's it should be deterministic in the sense that they run the same script, they get the exact same output. There's no there's no risk of making assumptions about data types or um, formulas not being copied down in Excel, you know, correctly. Um, you know, R does make some assumptions, right? Like if you pass in like a vector of employee IDs, it thinks you want to do some math with it. It doesn't know it's a character if there's no, you know, if there's no um, characters, but I, I think to a lesser extent. And so it's much more, much more safe. And I, I have a, 
a strong preference for using a tool like that over something like Excel. You're so right. Whenever I have to go back and write my method sections, having the R script right there is just so, so money. Like you just like, oh, okay. So we, we eliminated people with a, I don't know, tenure of less than a year and uh, all, all these assumptions that you made in the moment, but may not recall you know, a month later when it's time to actually write up the results. Exactly. So I, 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 get the, I get the impression, not even the impression <laughs> that you're an R guy. Like, are, are there applications where Python is better than R? Oh, no. What, what, do, do we want to go there in this podcast? <laughs> I, I was like, steer us back, steer us back. <laughs> no, I, I, I try not to participate in, in those debates because the reality is, I, I think R Markdown is compatible with like 56 different languages. So if you want to use Julia or you want to use C or you want to use something else, like you, you can connect and you can leverage the boat, you know, the, the best of all of those different languages. So I think the days of like having to compromise on a single language, like I, I think, I, I think those arguments are like dead in the water. Right? Those are no longer relevant. And so if, if you're a Python, you know, uh, whiz and, and you're, you're more, you're more comfortable with that, but you want like ggplot data viz capabilities, like you can have that, right? Like you don't, you don't have to settle for, uh, you know, whatever, whatever is native to Python. Same thing with R, if you want like pandas, like, you know, for, for data oh, rate, yeah. I actually like dplyr much more, but if you prefer pandas, like, you know, there, there's that, there's that possibility as well. So yeah, I, I don't I don't participate in the R versus Python debates. Thank you. The debate they're both great is tools. Now over. <laughs> yeah. SPSS right. or R or Python. Well, well, Scott, I got a question for you. <laughs> I, I I got a question real quick. Um, do you like your it. job? <laughs> I actually love my job. I I I'm one of these blessed people, and I absolutely love my job. Do you think? let's say for the sake of argument you didn't like your job do you think you should be punished by your work if you didn't like your job should you be i'm gonna need more information I, I i think that if you don't like your job you're already being punished by going in every day and hating your job <laughs> i i, I like have i have been in the situation where like and it's it's really the people around you that make your job that i find that like if you don't have a good time with those folks the, your job becomes exponentially worse I've, I've had these situations where uh i've dreamt about going into my office and hating my job all day only to wake up to have to go in the office and hate the job all day luckily that period lasted a very short time in my life but yes you are automatically punished by not liking your job well that's not necessarily the direction i was going but that's okay <laughs> that was a good fun aside um, Adam Grant recently published um, on Twitter some research by some some folks at NSEED and, uh, and the University of Hong Kong that showed that people who don't love their jobs actually do carry a penalty at work um, and that he's saying that it shouldn't carry that penalty in terms of it limits their ability to get raises and promotions. Um, his argument is basically performance requires professionalism, not passion. What counts is how people contribute, not how they feel about their job. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about this? Do you think that a person should have to be passionate about their job to get a raise or a promotion? Or is performance all that's necessary? I, 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 would, I would answer the question with a question. Do we think that performance and passion are correlated? 
Mm, interesting. Like in other words, can, can you be consistently a high performer if you view your role as complete drudgery? I I have a uh, in case of one, but I I think of like Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. I think that he is a fantastic football player, but I don't really think he likes football. I really don't. But yeah. I, I, I I would draw the line at I I see where Adam's going here. But I would draw the line at you should not be punished for not liking your job, but you should be punished for being a drain on other people and making them not like their job. So if you come in with a shitty attitude and like rain on other people's parade, yes, you should be punished and you're a cancer and you should be removed from that situation. Can't disagree with that. I I think, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm making a straw man argument here, but. I do think it's possible to individually perform, even if you aren't feeling great about your role or your job. And if that is the case, you really shouldn't be penalized. But I think what both of you have said is there's obviously going to be a bleed over effect to how you treat other people likely, or how you're treating, you know, the, the, the importance of the work itself, if you don't have that passion. And so I actually agree with you, Craig, I I do think there's a correlation between passion and performance and, and so, but it's probably not as clear as, as maybe we're making it out to be. Yeah, plus plus one. Yeah, and Scott, to your point, I, I often think about the effects of a toxic employee's long goodbye, you know, and you can see yeah. that in like O&A uh, use cases as well, kind of that contagion effect of like that toxicity and, and how it kind of perm- permutates. And and so I, yeah, I think it's really important to to look at that. I I, I don't know that I've seen folks who are really unhappy in their role be like really positive influences on on those around them um there, there could be some some outliers but i think in general um but there is that carryover effect like the ones you know personal setting family friends even outside the work context i i, I saw a study some time ago it's probably like 2017 uh essentially had a call center floor so these call centers like big as a football field and they showed that the effects of a good energizing employee expanded about 20 feet around them. The other employees around them had a positive uptake, contagious nature, if you will, of that employee's behaviors. A toxic employee infected the entire floor. So it's important to try to isolate or mitigate those employees as quickly as possible. Yeah, put them on their own floor. That's what I say. (laughs) Isolate them. But I mean, like, if if you do encounter someone that is uh, lacks passion, hopefully you engage in some sort of like job crafting behaviors to maximize the uh, aspects of the job that they do enjoy and minimize the ones that they don't. Obviously, like if you're a construction worker, there's only so much that you can do. But a typical uh, knowledge worker, office worker, those are yeah. fungible skills that can be transferred to other areas. Absolutely. Well, yeah, sounds like a leadership this, moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But like, I, I think that, that that energizing aspect, maybe, maybe that's just a code for passion. I don't know. That carries over to other people and it increases their performance. Therefore, yes, you should be rewarded for that because you do have not only a positive effect on the specific work that you're given, but the team around you. It's very nuanced, though. I understand what Adam's talking about, but I think it's more nuanced. I think what you're describing, Scott, is like organizational citizenship behaviors, right? 
and how that those have a relationship to performance on the job as well, which I think, I mean, I'm trying, I'm going back to school here, but I'm, I think that there's a very strong linkage between those two things as well. Um, but kind of just as a slight pivot, Craig, I know one of the things that you wanted to talk about is, you know, performance and productivity measurement. Um, any things that, that you wanted to cover in that area? Yeah, you know, productivity is such a, um, such a challenging and loaded term because it means different things to different people, right? There's no, there's no universal um, measure as best I can tell. And so if you look at productivity in the, the context of a call center, it looks quite different than the context of like an HR business partner or someone in people analytics or someone in sales, someone in finance. And so, um, you know, in, in every organization in which I've led people analytics, productivity has been something that the business very much cares about. Um, and, you know, we, we've been thinking about this uh, recently as well at Roku. And there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different ways in which we could go about measuring it. There are like role and level specific measures, right? Because even within a job family or a job profile, there's different expectations at different levels. We wouldn't expect, you know, a, a junior level software engineer to do the same things that a senior level yeah. software engineer is doing. And so you got to look at it um, at, at the level, um, at the management level as well. Um, and so we've been thinking about, do, do we look at, do we look at it by level and by job profile, which is not very scalable because it's going to take a long time to do. Um, and in some cases, there's no hard measures for it, right? Like what is, what does productivity mean in the context of like people analytics? If ever, or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the other alternative is looking at like some proxy measures. Like, are there some proxies where we, where we could say like engagement may be highly correlated with productivity across a wide spectrum of different roles and levels. And therefore we could potentially use something like a survey measure as a more easily accessible proxy for, for productivity. Um, but then there's, there's a lot of debates around like self-reported productivity. How reliable is that? I don't know. What do you guys think? We, we had RJ Milner on uh, several weeks ago, and he said that they were getting like really good correlations between self-reported productivity and uh, objective measures. Uh, I, I haven't recreated this, but uh, RJ's a smart dude, and like I, I believe him. It's 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 definitely something worth exploring because, to your point, we we don't really have good objective measures of this, and it varies by the job that you're in. Uh, and performance is a whole different other battle because you do have this like criterion contamination where people start comparing to other job levels that perhaps isn't appropriate, and. I, I wonder if like part of the reason that we're seeing like kind of flat or even increased productivity during the pandemic is because like you still have the same um, Raider source. That is the supervisor typically handles uh, performance ratings and someone's always going to be rated high and someone's always going to be rated low because it's somewhat a relative measure. So maybe that's why we haven't seen a drop in productivity. Yeah, it's just a sliding scale of sorts. Yeah. And I, I do think RJ made some good points a few weeks ago. And I think if you go in the way, way back machine, I think in one of our first three episodes, we covered this in pretty good detail. So I'll, I'll kind of go a different direction now. And 
I think this is actually a philosophical question. It's why it can't be answered because it's productivity according to whom, right? Is it productivity according to yourself? Is it according to your boss? Is it according to the organization? And therefore, it can't, it fundamentally can't be an objective question because of the vantage point problem, right? And, and so I, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of cycles trying to figure this out in a practical sense, but in a philosophical sense, I think that's really the core reason of why we keep having the criterion problem over and over and over again. I, I love this. It's exactly what we're going full circle to what Craig said earlier. It's like it all starts with the organization's mission, vision, and strategy. And that's where the performance ratings really ought to start. That's what performance really is about. Well, this has been fun, Craig. I like good stuff, man. You're bringing it. I like it. Yeah, I, I'll say this has been a really productive uh, podcast, guys. Totally. Craig, Craig, quick question. Like, are you a, a Battlestar Galactica fan? Oh. <laughs> you, you, you know, I've actually, uh, sadly enough, despite my last name, I've never seen Battlestar Galactica. But uh, w whenever I have to give my name for something, it's either Battlestar Galactica or coffee jokes. So I've got to watch it. <laughs> Oh, I, I hearken back to watching reruns of the uh, 70s Battlestar Galactica and seeing Starbuck, the protagonist, with Commander Adama battling the Cylons. Isn't there a newer series? There is. I, I, never, I never saw it. Never saw the 2005, 6, 7 version, whenever that came out. I see Cole like shrugging. Like he's, he doesn't like this at all. These are these are non cold topics. I, I tolerate <laughs> them, but yeah. It's not well, like cold if it's any consolation at the non Craig topic as well, because I've never seen it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we actually have some exciting news um, to share as well before we wrap this thing up. Um, our podcast has acquired a sponsor, which is exciting. And that's going to allow us to start doing some video clips and not just being audio only. So, Craig, you'll be the first, you know, person who'll show up on Directionally Correct's YouTube channel, which is exciting. But uh, for the next 15 episodes, my employer, Orgnostic, is sponsoring the podcast. And so um, exciting times here at, at Directionally Correct. Awesome. Congrats. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Well, you guys want to wrap this thing up? Let's bring it home. Awesome. Well, um, Craig... Really enjoyed having you on the episode, but I uh, want to give you the final word. What did you think about today? Yeah, I loved it. Uh, again, guys, thanks so much for all you're doing with this podcast. I always learn a lot. I uh, love to see such a generous community and people analytics practitioners giving back uh, in, in different ways. And uh, yeah, just really, uh, really a privilege. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Really enjoyed the time. How can uh, folks get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn's uh, probably the best way. We bashed it enough earlier, but I guess it does serve some purpose. It does have a purpose. It does have a function, yes. Yeah, absolutely. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.